Uh, let us begin in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us, and lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Amen. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Well, welcome to another edition of Seeds of Truth. This is your host, Joe Holcraft, coming to you from KKXX Studios, Chico Life Radio, 104.5 FM and AM 930. It is great to be with you another Tuesday evening, where we are set to continue our reflections into the book of Genesis. Yesterday, I said we would get into chapter 23, and we got stuck in verse 18, right? So <laughs> we are going to get into Genesis 23, and to be sure we do so, I just want to jump right into chapter 23. So if you can pull out your Bibles and turn to the book of Genesis chapter 23, if you haven't already done so, and and hopefully you've not only already turned your Bible to this chapter, but you've already read this chapter, one of the things that I have been encouraging you to do is to make sure that you are spending a little extra time with these chapters, just not after I talk about them, but also before I talk about them. Because often that is where your questions come from. If there's something you don't understand about what the text is saying, uh, you can come to me with your question, and, and that is where some of your questions have come from as uh, you share them with me. So if you are a uh, first-time listener, please be sure that you are spending time with the text um, both before and after. All right, with that, Genesis chapter 23, and I will go ahead and read all of the chapter. I think we have here, what, 20 verses. Verse 1, Sarah lived 127 years. These were the years of the life of Sarah. And Sarah died at Kiria Atharba, that is in Hebron, in the land of Canaan. And Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. And Abraham rose up from before his dead and said to the Hittites, I am a stranger and a sojourner among you. Give me property among you for a burying place, that I may bury my dead out of my sight. The Hittites answered Abraham, Hear us, my Lord, you are a mighty prince among us. Bury your dead in the choicest of our sepulchres. None of us will withhold from you his sepulcher or hinder you from burying your dead. Abraham rose and bowed to the Hittites, the people of the land, and he said to them, If you are willing that I should bury my dead out of my sight, hear me and entreat for me Ephron, the son of Zohar, that he may give me the cave of Machpelah, which he owns. It is at the end of his field. For the full price, let him give it to me in your presence as a possession for a burying place. Now Ephron was sitting among the Hittites, and Ephron the Hittite answered Abraham in the hearing of the Hittites, of all who went in at the gate of his city, No, my lord, hear me. I give you the field, and I give you the cave that is in it. In the presence of the sons of my people, I give it to you. Bury your dead. Then Abraham bowed down before the people of the land, and he said to Ephron in the hearing of the people of the land, But if you will hear me, I will give you the price of the field, accept it from me that I may bury my dead there. Ephron answered Abraham, My Lord, listen to me. A piece of land worth 400 shekels of silver, what is that between you and me? Bury your dead. Abraham agreed with Ephron, 
And Abraham weighed out for Ephron the silver which he had named in the hearing of the Hittites, four hundred shekels of silver, according to the weights current among the merchants. So the field of Ephron and Machpelah, which was to the east of Mamre, the field with the cave which was in it, and all the trees that were in the field throughout its whole area was made over. To Abraham as a possession in the presence of the Hittites before all who went at the gate of his city. After this, Abraham buried Sarah his wife in the cave of the field of Machpelah, east of Mamre, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan. The field and the cave that is in it were made over to Abraham as a possession for a burying place by the Hittites. All right, well, a number of things going on here, obviously. Uh, you have asked me to talk about the significance of Abraham weeping. We'll talk about that here in a bit. But I do want to first speak to the significance of all of these verses, the importance of a burial place, the importance of a funeral, if you will. Right? I have been asked often the question about the significance of a funeral uh, within the Catholic Church, and for that matter, within most Christian churches. And I often say, when it comes to a funeral, you have an opportunity for something deeply profound, the opportunity to pronounce in ritual form one's grief, one's remembering. Uh, Father Mike Ritter joins me, as have other priests, and they have all said that while people think baptisms are our great joy or, or weddings are our great joy, and they are, the lasting impression any one ceremony gives me outside, of course, of the Eucharist is the funeral. There's something deeply profound about the remembering of a life. I have been to a number of funerals recently, uh, and I was at a funeral actually over this past weekend. Um, I lost an uncle, and I will tell you that these are opportunities, opportunities to just not reflect into the life of, of the loved one lost, yes, for sure, but also how as we reflect into a particular life and, and how that life lived with passion and purpose. You know, this past weekend, uh, we were celebrating this life, if you will. Yes, we were mourning, but we were also celebrating uh, this life, uh, my uncle who had passed. And as we were, it was reflecting back on us, each and every one of us, insofar as we were allowing it to. Just by reflecting into this man's life, did I leave this memorial service a better person? Why? Because he was a man that allowed God to invade his soul through and through. And it was through the course of the whole day. It was through the course of the rites, if you will, that allowed me to go deeper and deeper. And while it wasn't a full Catholic funeral per se, certainly the service itself allowed me to reflect upon what I needed to reflect upon. And what you have going on in these 20 verses is certainly some of the agreements, some of the covenant-making in relationship to field and, and gravesite. But beyond that, this deeper sense that there's a reason why they were taking so much time in this court-like setting to make sure that Abraham had what he needed, to hit the pause button and take time to remember, especially just not your loved one, but in the case of salvation history, Sarah, 
right? Who, who I have already said is probably the most underestimated person in all of the Old Testament. We just don't talk about her enough. And where we see her in sacred scripture, hopefully I have justified that, that case with you over the course of the past few weeks. Anyhow, I thought just these verses in this chapter should at the very least encourage us to see the great significance of mourning. That being said, that more or less gets us to really your question, and that is what we read in verse 2. And Sarah died at Kiriatharba, that is Hebron, in the land of Canaan, and Abraham went in to mourn for Sarah and to weep for her. Now, for many of us, this brings us to, of course, the great beatitude that we read in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4, that really, alongside of the first beatitude, blessed are those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God, kickstarts the whole Sermon on the Mount, and that is, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Now, before we jump into how we might more traditionally define this beatitude, I do want to be clear on something, because I don't think we're altogether familiar with probably the best rendering of this passage. As it relates to the Beatitude, according to the Church Fathers, Christ really is first talking about the grieving that goes on when we mourn our own sin and the sin of others. Hence those words, for they shall be comforted, right? That is what this verse is about, that we are grieving the plight of man's sin, our sin and the sin of others. We have to remember that at its core, and this is really Thomas Aquinas, mourning is the expression of what we can call an inner discontent, of the gap between desire and satisfaction. In other words, for suffering. So uh, St. Augustine says here, our true consolation will be that which gives comfort that will never be lost. So what am I talking about here? When we grieve our sin, what are we grieving but the loss of God? And so for this reason, any interpretation of this text that does not include this rendering of mourning, I dare say would be an impoverishment of the text. Now, that being said, certainly it is within our faith to apply this text to the more conventional understanding of mourning and grieving as we mourn the loss of others that brings about our own suffering and the suffering of others. Uh, This has been drawn out in the fourth spiritual work of mercy, comfort the sorrowful, or as it has also been applied, comfort the afflicted. Now, sorrow comes as the result of innumerable things, right? Betrayal by a friend, feeling alone, a, a disappointment or a failure. Maybe it's something regrettable that we have done, Uh, something mean or evil that has been done to us. Uh, Maybe it's a disability. Or maybe it's it's just simply the losses that come with aging. Uh, Whatever form it takes, sorrow has many faces. And when it comes to sorrow, certainly we can see in reading sacred scripture that Jesus truly enters into that truth as the Son of God. Jesus conducted a ministry, we could say, of presence with those who were grieving a death. When the widow of Nain lost her only son, he went to her, and what do we read in Luke chapter 7, verse 13, that he was moved with 
pity for her. And you've heard me talk about this before. The Greek word for pity translates as um, he was moved literally to the guts. He was moved to the core of his being. Also, when the daughter of uh, Jairus died in Luke chapter 8, verse 15, what did Jesus do? Jesus went to the home of her parents who were weeping and mourning. Of course, John chapter 11, verse 35, we are all familiar with that passage, right? When Martha and Mary lost their brother Lazarus, Jesus went to Bethany to be with them, and he wept with them. We read in verse 35, he wept, which some have argued is the most powerful prayer in all of sacred scripture. We'll talk about that in a bit. Uh, Jesus comforted countless others who were sorrowful. How about the dejected woman who had been crippled for 18 years? Once again, in the gospel of Luke, he comforted her saying, what? You are free of your infirmity. I mean, the, the gospel of Luke really is the gospel of and for suffering. How about when the criminal pleaded for mercy? Jesus comforted him saying, what? Today you will be with me in paradise. In Luke chapter 24, when the disciples were embarrassed about abandoning their master, Jesus comforted them saying in, in uh, verse 36, peace be with you. We read in in the Old Testament, Jeremiah chapter 31, God saying, I will console and gladden them after their sorrows. And this is what he does in the gift of the Holy Spirit. As we read in Acts chapter 9, verse 31, and also in the Gospel of John, that the Holy Spirit is the comforter, the one who brings divine gifts, and the one who brings consolation and peace. So, in this spiritual work of mercy comfort the sorrowful. God asks us to bring comfort to the sorrowful as messengers of what I would argue for presence. When there has been a death, how do we provide consolation? But through presence, right? Go in person, attend the wake, the memorial, or the funeral, visit their home, right? Be present to them. Comforting the sorrowful requires great patience, uh, great sensitivity, great silence. And why do we speak of patience and sensitivity in silence within, this, uh, within the context of this work of mercy? Because sorrow or grief often, and I think you would agree with me on this, has a life and logic of its own, right? Sometimes, if not all the time, grief has to just run its course, Often there is very little a person can say when grief is present. What does St. Paul say in Romans chapter 12? Uh, I think it's verse 14 or 15. Weep with those who weep. So it is, my friends. We do exactly that. St. Augustine once observed that, and I love this, sighs and tears and prayer often accomplish more than words. Sighs and tears in prayer often accomplish more than words. Why? Because really, sighs and tears in of themselves become the prayer. We see Jesus looking up to heaven and, and sighing, groaning, praying, right? Earlier I said Jesus wept. His tears are 
a sacrament, we could say, of his interior offering to God. And so it is that when people are sorrowful, their grief and tears are their prayer, and we would do well to honor that. Rather than, than say things like, um, you know, don't be sad or, or cheer up or, you know, God can't give you anything you can't handle. That is sloppy. That is absolutely sloppy. And, and the spirit is never sloppy, okay? Be mindful of the nature of grief that has a logic of its own. Again, a largely silent and respectful silence can be a way of, of honoring grief. And in signaling, I would also say a true work of mercy. Now, if one notices a person getting stuck in his grief, not making progress over an extended period of time, then, well, yeah, more will be needed, but not right away. You know, people need time and room to grieve. Some people take longer than others. There's no really one right way to grieve. Each and every one of us have a different story to tell that is caught up in a whole series of, of different experiences and, and, and circumstances that have made you who you are. And no matter how faithful you are, when something tragic happens to you, you're going to respond to it differently based upon all of the built-up relationships you have and also, sadly, broken relationships. This gives a different trajectory to how we grieve. So to to comfort and console requires a sensitivity on our part that seeks to discover always, anywhere and everywhere, what the person needs on his terms or, or her terms, not ours. And again, yeah, if there are signs of depression or a serious lack of progress, this may be an indication that we should become more active in our comforting and in consoling, uh, maybe getting them out there to be more active potentially, if needed, to, to uh, get professional help. As I already noted, people are sorrowful <laughs> for many reasons. And we can be angels of consolation by doing nothing more than listening. Because a comforter is totally present, both in mind and in heart, and really focuses completely on another's troubles. It really enters into that all-important definition of love, to will the good of the other for the sake of other. That being said, if physical presence is impossible, comfort can be extended how? But in other ways, a card, a phone call, flowers, a little gift, a home-cooked meal, help on a task, whatever it might be. When we comfort the sorrowful, these are ways that we can, again, at the very least, be quasi-present to the one who is grieving. As I'm speaking to this, and, and as I respond to, to your inquiry into Abraham's grief, you know, we, we emphasize this word comfort. What does the word comfort mean? Hey, because it implies something more vigorous than just a mere giving comfort. The Latin roots are cum and fortis. So with and strong. Thus, to comfort someone in its uh, older etymological root means to strengthen someone. So in this sense, the word comfort is, yeah, probably better paired with the other traditional rendering of this spiritual work of mercy, which is comfort the afflicted 
What does afflicted mean? Afflicted means to be struck down. Afflicted means to be weakened. Afflicted means to be injured. So yeah, to comfort the afflicted is this call for us to be more vigorous. Not that we aren't vigorous in our uh, desire and want and intention to be present to, to the person who is suffering, but to be active. We should always be mindful of the word active, huh? To comfort the afflicted means, in the end, to restore man to strength, huh? to enable him to persevere, to, to summon him to the courage that, that strongly resists those who, who would seek to render him weak or, or ineffective. Comfort the sorrowful. Comfort the afflicted. In either sense, this is a work of mercy that is restorative to a brother or sister in Christ. Restorative to the normal Christian state of being joyful, confident, and strong. You know, I've been asked on more than, uh, on more than one occasion, why does God allow this to happen? Again, in light of what I was talking about from the outset, we know death awaits us all. Death is an opportunity for a profound grace to go deeper in the spiritual life. I have to imagine, my friends, that at least this is what I was thinking about uh, in reading Genesis chapter 23, that as Abraham was grieving the loss of Sarah, I have to imagine that he was thinking about all the extraordinary things that God had done in his life, that God had done in Sarah's life. And ultimately, how in his looking back, he was made to appreciate what God had done in his own life and how he was calling him to be present to whatever it was that was before him in that moment. That ultimately, in the end, moving forward in the last days of Abraham's life, he was the person who God was calling him to be. And this is what grieving the, the, the death of a loved one does. It has us examining our own lives, asking such questions as, what motivates me to do what I do? Why do I wake up in the morning? Do I reflect into why I do what I do? <laughs> right? Why do I get so busy with life not thinking about other people? These are the questions that I was asking on Saturday, and I'm sure you've asked similar questions. And as we ask these questions, we do so mindful that God desires to be in that question, asking the question he asked the apostles, who do you say that I am? And as we've done before, kind of inverting that question, where God then asks us, who do I say that you are? Because once we ask that question, and in turn respond to that question, who do you say that I am? And, and we do so genuinely. We are then able to, I think, ask the other question and respond to it the way we ought. Who do I say that you are? God asking me, Joe, who do I say that you are as a son of God? Who am I calling you to be? What am I calling you to do? out from who you are. Again, questions I was asking over the weekend. Lord, did I miss something? Have I not been as present to you as I ought? 
mindful that every time I use the word ought, I can because there was first an is, and that is is God. And as there is a gap between the person we are and the person we ought to be, we move towards God because there's always more growth to be had. And to be at a memorial service, to be at a wake, to be at a funeral, all these things are opportunities. And so as every spiritual work of mercy is, yeah, sure, a gift to other, that our presence might be a gift to other, it is also a gift to us. Every time we give, there is always something in return for us. As it relates to the funerals, wakes and funerals we go to, the gift is just not the testimony of of the life we are celebrating and how it moves you, but also where we might find God and the questions we find ourselves asking on those days. This is why... Father Mike Ritter and and other priests, as they've joined me, have said funerals have been the most impactful for me because they see that kind of mutual gift. Amen? Amen. All right, let us close with a word of prayer in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Good and gracious God, we do just give you a special thanks and praise for the gift of another evening, the gift of time, these 27, 28 minutes that you afford us each and every day to just reflect not only into your living word, but also as your living word inspires within each and every one of us, these reflections that transform our way of thinking, these reflections all the while rooted in your truth, bear great fruit in how we live and interact with one another each and every day. All glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen, and God bless you. Thanks for listening to Seeds of Truth, heard every evening, Monday through Friday at 5.30 here on KKXX. If you'd like to hear this program or find out how you can help support Seeds of Truth, the website is joeholcraft.org.